You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to talk for just a little under a half hour here about using corticosteroids, systemic corticosteroids is what the, the focus is going to be on, Not, nothing about topicals, and then we'll have time to uh, do some Q&A informally afterwards. So... We'll start off, this is my theme, a couple little questions here for everybody, so grab your devices to answer on. All right, we'll start with a case. This is a 27-year-old woman with a five-day history of urticaria, and she's complaining of pruritus that is really bothersome. It's especially bad at night. She's trying Sarna. She's not getting improvement. She had a viral upper respiratory infection a week ago. What is the best way to start her treatment? Is it with daytime Zyrtec and nighttime Benadryl? Uh, triamcinolone cream twice a day? Put her on some prednisone? Get her on, started on Zolaire or hydroxazine, ev 50 milligrams every six hours? Great. This is acute onset urticaria following a viral URI. So this is someone you're immediately going to jump just to your antihistamines, and in all likelihood in a week or two, she's going to be better, and you're not going to hear from her again. So that is the best choice. How about this guy? He's 74, and he comes in with oral and cutaneous erosions. And you look at his, him, and you biopsy him, and you diagnose him with pemphigus vulgaris. Now what are you going to start him on? Clobetasol foam, cephalexin, dapsone, prenazone, or plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine? Great. Yep. Prenazone is your first-line treatment for anybody with pemphigus vulgaris, so you're going to jump to systemic steroids for something like this. I think this is our last question before we move to some, some discussion. Which of the following is a potential adverse effect of systemic corticosteroid therapy? Muscle pain, tooth staining, eyelash trichiasis, that's when your eyelashes turn inwards and rub on the surface of the eye, vertebral compression fractures, or dysuria. Perfect, vertebral compression fractures, correct answer. Okay, so um, let me make sure. I think that was our last question. Yeah. Okay. So corticosteroids, you know, there's, there, there are amazing medications. We didn't have them until the late 1940s, so they're not as old as one might think. But once they came into practice to, to use, it just absolutely revolutionized medicine. I mean, can you imagine treating any of these conditions before steroids? I mean, inflammatory bowel disease, lupus, vasculitis, sarcoidosis, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, urticaria, adrenal insufficiency, 
We use them in malignancies. There's almost nothing, no organ you can think of that doesn't have some indication for the use of corticosteroids. It's hard, I can't imagine practicing medicine without steroids. Um, so they're really important medications. Um, they work by binding to glucocorticoid receptors on white blood cells and other cells, which leads to increased transcription of anti-inflammatory genes and decreased transcription of pro-inflammatory genes. Okay, that's, they, get, they bind, they go to the nucleus, and they have effects on just about every cell you can think of. They're fantastic, right? They work fast. That's why they're the first thing we go to in a disease like pemphigus, where somebody's entire oral mucosa um, may be sloughing off. They're going to work quickly. They're easy. You know, it's a pill. It's not something you have to put on and... 16 times a day, it's a, usually once a day dosing, um, it works, they work great, they're cheap. I mean, I've never gotten a phone call saying I couldn't afford my prednisone. Um, so really, steroid, corticosteroids, they're like the ideal drug, right? Except they've got a lot of side effects. Um, so they can cause all of the side effects on this list and probably some more that I didn't think of. Um, most of these side effects are side effects that we see more with prolonged use, um, although the ones here that are underlined are things that we can see even on, in really short courses of steroids, the courses that we're using more frequently. Um, so in, within a week or two, you can start to see these side effects. So while, it, while they've got a lot of things that really make them the ideal medication there are a lot of downsides. So I want to talk a little bit about these in more detail so we know how best to manage these drugs, which are really important and which we do have to use all the time until we have more and more perfectly targeted biologic molecular therapies um, so we can, we can use them safely. So bones. I think osteoporosis is one that everybody is well aware of. How do, how do steroids cause osteoporosis? Well, they increase the activity of osteoclasts. These are cells that are break bone down, and that's something bone normally does. There's constant remodeling of bone, um, but these really make the osteoclasts active uh, in a uh, more than they ought to be, um, and they increase apoptosis of osteoblasts, the cells that are making new bone and osteocytes. Um, so you get less bone formation, and they decrease the lifespan of those cells that produce bone. So they target these cells important in bone mineral density homeostasis um, in, in a multitude of ways, all of which are detrimental to bone health and, and cause osteoporosis. Typically, we see this when people are on what we call supraphysiologic doses of steroids, and that doesn't take much. So seven and a half milligrams per day of prednisone or equivalent is kind of considered physiologic. That's about the amount our own adrenal glands make on a daily basis. So once we exceed this um, fairly low dose, we start to see these side effects. Um, for patients who are on steroids at this dose for three months or more, their osteoporosis risk starts to go up. And this is independent of their age, so we see this in kids and in adults, um, and in and gender. So men and women, this risk goes up for osteoporosis. It's not just a, a female uh, problem. 
Osteoporosis, one of the things that it, that it most commonly presents with, the, one of the complications it commonly presents with in patients on chronic steroids is vertebral compression fracture, which you all recognized as one of the side effects in that quiz question earlier. Um, vertebral compression fractures present with low back pain. So how often does somebody come into your office and say they've got back pain? Well, how many people don't have back pain once they're, you know, over 50, 60? It's really, really common. We're seeing a lot, we see that all the time. Um, but these patients develop low back pain, and it's usually in the absence of any trauma. So they didn't fall down the stairs or, or have some kind of accident beforehand. They just get low back pain. Um, so if you have a patient who has been on prednisone at 7.5 milligrams a day or more um, who comes in and says, you know, I'm having a lot of low back pain, and they don't have a really good explanation for it that's pretty much, you know, a watertight case for why they have it, get some x-rays um, because you'd be surprised how early in the course of corticosteroids at these doses you can see that occur, um, and an x-ray usually will pick it up. Weight gain, weight gain, and then that Cushingoid appearance. Um, when we're on, we have patients on steroids again for more than usually a few weeks to months. You start to have a redistribution of adipose, and that's what leads to these Cushingoid features. Um, and this happens pretty early, within the first couple months of treatment. I'm sure probably all of you have had somebody that you put on for three or four weeks and came back, and you were like, couldn't believe it was the same person because in that shortened amount of time, they started to get that kind of round moon face. Um, Longer use, they'll start to get increased adiposity on the, um, the sort of trapezius area, the dorsocervical um, fat pad will increase, and then they get more truncal obesity as well. So that's what we mean by Cushingoid appearance. Um, the risk of weight gain and the Cushingoid changes is dependent on dose and duration of treatment, though again, it can start within the first several weeks of treatment. The risk is higher in younger patients. Um, it's higher in people who have a higher BMI at baseline or those who already have a higher than average caloric intake. So those are the people that are going to um, notice this even more uh, as a problem with their chronic steroid use. High blood sugar and diabetes. This is one of those ones that was on the short-term list, one of those underlined side effects. Um, so we know that um, in patients who already have diabetes, when you put them on steroids, insulin resistance increases even further. So their diabetes becomes even more difficult to manage. So if you have somebody who already has, has diabetes, um, it's, it's not enough to say, well, you know, you're already on medication for your diabetes. Their diabetes is going to become harder to control. Um, it usually, there, any hyperglycemia a patient has, though, related to steroids, usually does go away as you lower their dose and get them off, although there are some rare instances in which persistent insulin resistance occurs after prolonged use of steroids. So patients can actually develop diabetes as a result of long-term steroid use. So what we recommend is that if you have a patient that you know you're going to be keeping on steroids for more than probably about three months, and that's somebody maybe with pemphigus or pemphigoid, that it's going to take that long before your steroid-sparing agent kicks in, um, that you want to check an A1C before you put them on that. Um, you might want to check, have them get a fasting glucose uh, as well. And then if that's abnormal, you want to make sure you're working with their 
primary care provider to make sure that their blood sugars are being adequately, um, appropriately managed. Um, if they already have diabetes, of course, you're going to tell them, watch your blood sugars more closely. If they're not already doing home monitoring, they may need to start to do so. Um, I had a patient just recently who had dress syndrome, who had diabetes, and we put him, had to put him on steroids knowing it was going to be months before he would be completely off of them. And he said, oh yeah, I do home monitoring. Um, and we had him come back in a couple weeks and checked his blood sugar, uh, sent him home, said, stay on your 60 milligrams a day of prednisone because he had said, yeah, they've been a little high, but, you know, they've been, they've been okay. Well, the sugar comes back at like 780. Um, home glucose monitors, a lot of them like max out in terms of their, their accuracy after you hit maybe 500, some of them even less than that. So um, this guy was, was hospitalized uh, until we got his sugars under good control. So make sure patients are, are monitoring and kind of assess for them what high means because they may have a different idea of high than you do. GI symptoms, common with steroids. Again, this can be an early steroid complication. Um, we can see gastritis, ulcers, perforation, gastric ulcer per, uh, and uh, intestinal ulcer perforation, hemorrhage from that, um, just upset stomach. That's one of those more short-term side effects that we see, um, even abdominal distension. So, um, the, and the risk is greater in patients who are also taking NSAIDs, which is a lot of patients that we are seeing, whether it's for what we're treating them for or whether they also have arthritis. Um, so patients who are on NSAIDs and prednisone, much, much higher risk of ulcers of the GI tract. Um, so in these patients in particular, but in almost anyone I'm putting on long-term steroids, I am putting them on some type of GI prophylaxis, proton pump inhibitors, or even the H2 blockers. Um, and I'm asking them at every visit about stomach issues and also asking them if they've developed like dark black stool, which can be an indicator of GI bleeding that's maybe not so acute. Cardiovascular disease. We know steroids are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular problems. Blood pressure increases when people are on long-term steroids. Um, again, we talked about hyperglycemia and obesity. Also, of course, cardiovascular risk factors. The risk is greater the higher their dose. So again, a dose and duration related problem. Um, in addition to these risk factors, patients on chronic steroids have a higher risk of heart failure and ischemic heart disease and also of arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter developing from uh, chronic corticosteroid use. So it's not, not just the coronary artery disease risk factors, but also arrhythmias. So you want to monitor patients' lipids uh, while they're being treated with before and while they're being treated um, and make sure that cardiovascular risk factors, their blood pressure is well controlled um, while they're on these drugs too. Psychiatric problems, again, this can be one of the short-term issues. And there's a range of psychiatric side effects of steroids. Um, some of it can just can be things like memory impairment, but it can also include being having delirium, agitation, insomnia would be considered in the list, and we always talk about sleep problems uh, with patients who are on steroids, even in the short term. 
Um, it's the elderly patient who is at greater risk in general of these complications. And we can see these problems within the first week of steroid treatment. So important to kind of talk about these, um, particularly with older patients. Um, and, and the risk does increase the longer a patient is on steroids. Steroids are immunosuppressants. That's why we're using them for many of the diseases that we're using them for. Um, but of course, they're not perfect. They're not targeted uh, at suppressing the part of the immune system driving whatever disease process we're treated. So, treating. So there is an increased risk um, of, of infection, which also is dose and duration related. Um, the risk seems to be really um, particularly great for invasive fungal infections and viral infections. Um, again, older patients or patients who at baseline are already um, ill or not well are going to have a greater risk of getting infections while on steroids. Um, but the challenging thing with infections while on steroids is that some of those signs we rely on to tell us a patient is having an infection are not going to be as apparent because the steroids suppress, suppress those symptoms. They may not be able to mount a fever like somebody who is not on steroids. Um, their white count's going to be high, and you're going to look at it and say, well, that's because they're on steroids. And how do we know whether it's a white count related to infection, or is it a white blood count, a high neutrophil count because of the steroids? Um, so you have to have a little bit of a higher index of suspicion for infection when you're treating somebody with steroids if they're presenting with any new changes um, because some of your testing and, and signs won't be reliable. Cataracts and glaucoma. When people get cataracts while on steroids, usually it's after they've been on steroids for, for a long period of time. We're talking probably a year or more. It's a different type of cataract than we see from age-related and sun-related cataracts. In steroid-induced cataracts, they're called posterior subcapsular cataracts, a slightly different location. Um, but they, these are more visually significant cataracts, and they require intervention sooner than cataracts that we see related to sun damage and normal aging. Um, and again, usually something that takes being on the steroids for a long time. Um, and it's actually more of a risk when people are using steroid eye drops than with oral steroids, but it can occur from long-term oral steroid use as well. Glaucoma. In contrast, definitely related to oral steroid use, you can have an increased risk in intraocular pressure. Um, and after that pressure, after the steroids go away, the pressure will normalize. But if that pressure increase was enough to damage the optic nerve, once the optic nerve is damaged, that's not going to get better. So vision changes related to this are permanent. Um, so we want to make sure that patients who are on chronic steroids are seeing ophthalmologists and being screened for increases in intraocular pressure during the course of their therapy. And then osteonecrosis, or avascular necrosis, the hip is the most common uh, site for this to occur. Um, studies have shown that anywhere from about 10 to 40% of adults on long-term steroids can develop this. Um, I've seen reports of it occurring within we, a week of starting steroids. Again, it's usually related to long-term use, but occasionally can happen in, in the very short term. Um, and it can happen, this is not related to osteoporosis. Um, so this is, this is damage of the vascular supply to a joint. Um, it has nothing to do with bone mineral density. It can happen in younger people and older people. Um, and if you 
have a patient who starts to complain of new onset joint pain, particularly hip pain, while on steroids, you want to get that patient evaluated right away because this is a condition that if you don't stop steroids and intervene rapidly, there's not really any good treatment for it and patients end up needing joint replacements. Um, and really the best screening test for this is an MRI. Um, but I'll have patients see their primary care provider to help evaluate, you know, do you think this could be steroid related, that they may be able to do a good exam and say, oh no, we know that this is some bursitis or something else, but an MRI, an imaging test may be necessary. One of the questions asked initially was about muscle pain. Well, steroids can cause myopathy. Long-term use of steroids can cause myopathy. Um, we know that steroids actually have a catabolic effect on skeletal muscles. These are corticosteroids. They're not anabolic steroids that make the muscles bigger. Um, they actually reduce protein synthesis and lead to weakness. Um, and that myopathy develops over weeks to months. So you can see this within, in patients who have been on steroids in the kind of duration we're using for drug hypersensitivity syndrome or bullous diseases. Um, it tends to be proximal muscle weakness and atrophy. So again, you get people who get obese in the center and then their limbs get kind of twiggy. And part, part of that's from this muscle catabolism. Um, that said, the muscles are affected, but it causes weakness, not pain. So that's why muscle pain was not the correct answer in that question initially. Weakness, yes. Pain, no. So it's not like a myositis. Um, there's not really a good test for this type of muscle weakness, um, but it does get better as you get rid of the steroids. And there's some evidence that exercise may help prevent atrophy. So if you have somebody that's going to be on steroids over a long time um, course, it's important to talk to them about continuing to have a good exercise regimen to try and help keep them from having that muscle atrophy. Adrenal suppression. The, another side effect we watch for, and that's because our adrenal glands start to make less of their own cortisol because they're being exposed to cortisol exogenously. Um, the duration and dose of treatment, unfortunately, are not really reliable predictors of who is going to get this. Um, so, and, and we can start to see adrenal suppression within just days of starting systemic steroids uh, in some patients, particularly if you're doing high-dose treatment. The most important thing for detecting adrenal su suppression is being suspicious and looking for it and talking to patients about what they should look for. Um, it's more likely in patients getting higher doses or getting multiple repeated doses of steroids within a fairly short amount of time. Um, but you need to, to be worried about this. And anybody who presents with symptoms, the symptoms of adrenal insufficiency, though, are very nonspecific. Fatigue malaise, kind of feeling blah, maybe some headaches, myalgias, just not feeling, feeling very good. And a lot of times people who are on steroids have diseases that give them those same kinds of symptoms. So it can be tricky to know whether what they're experiencing is disease-related or not. But you, if this is something that's a change for them from their baseline um, in terms of, of those constitutional, sort of vague constitutional symptoms, think about this. Um, adrenal crisis causes hypotension. It's an emergency. They can be lethargic. They can um, have you know, decreased levels of consciousness. They can get hypoglycemia. Um, and, and it can cause, can cause death. Um, 
but most of the time we're seeing sort of those blah feelings just in, in the insufficiency t uh, phase of this. Um, you can try and avoid this by do dosing your steroids with the morning doses instead of giving it BID. So just do, do, giving your steroid dose in the morning, which can also help with insomnia. Theoretically, giving steroids every other day may reduce that risk, although there's not really good evidence to support that. To monitor for adrenal suppression, if you are worried about this in a patient, um, if you're tape, once you taper them down to seven and a half milligrams per day, you can send them for an AM cortisol level. And you get them to hold their steroid dose the evening before if they're taking twice daily, and the morning of the test, and then you send them to get an 8 a.m. cortisol level. They have to go early in the morning to do that. Um, and if it's low, then they have adrenal suppression. And you want to stop that taper and slow it down and probably work with their doctor or endocrinologist to fix your taper in such a way that you're likely to allow their adrenal glands to wake back up. If their level is normal, it doesn't mean they have adrenal um, they don't have adrenal insufficiency. If they still have those symptoms, you still might want to send them to an endocrinologist because sometimes that AM cortisol is not as re reliable as you'd like and you have to do some other tests to really figure out if their adrenals are functioning appropriately. So the bottom line is before you're starting anybody on steroids um, who's going to be on more than um, five milligrams Five milligrams, that should be per day, not per kilogram per day. Don't be putting people on more than five milligrams per kilogram per day for three months. Um, you want to assess for um, those baseline conditions like diabetes and heart disease, GI issues, psych issues. You want to check their weight, their height, their bone mineral density beforehand or at the early, in the early days of treatment, their blood pressure, their CBC, their glucose. You kind of want to see where they stand in terms of all of those risk factors um, and, of course, assess for signs of uh, infection. This table is in, in your handout. The reference there, I think this is a really good one for, for, with a long list of um, tables that are helpful in terms of managing chronic steroid use if you do happen to have some patients that need to be on them for a long period of time with sort of what you should do at baseline and how frequently should you be repeating things like DEXA scans or checking their lipids, um, how should you be monitoring and treating hyperglycemia. Um, we should all though be putting our patients who are on, on steroids on calcium and vitamin D. We talked about that a little bit earlier. We want to use the lowest effective dose and the minimum amount of steroid needed, not of calcium and vitamin D. Um, we want to give the steroids early in the morning to, um, or in the morning to, or every other day to try and reduce our risk of adrenal suppression and psychiatric side effects. And then we want to have them on calcium and vitamin D. And if they're going to be on steroids for three months or more, I start them on a bisphosphonate as well. Um, and also, those are the patients, if I know they're going to need, need steroids for that long, that's, I'm immediately starting to think about steroid sparing agents so I can start them at the same time so they have the time it takes to kick in. Hopefully, they're kicking in around three months, and I can then be getting my patients off their steroids. Tapering steroid therapy. When we're tapering, when you start at a high dose, 40, 60, 80 milligrams, you can start tapering really pretty substantially pretty quickly. You can go 80, 40, 20, even if they've been on it for a while. But once you start to get closer to physiologic doses, you want to slow your taper down. 
Um, and remember, when patients have been on, stero on steroids for a long time, keep that adrenal suppression screening in the back of your mind. Remember to check AM cortisols once they're down to that physiologic dose, especially if they're having any symptoms. And if they are having symptoms or they've been on steroids a long time and you're tapering and they suddenly get really sick, they're in an accident, they're having surgery, they may need stress doses, higher doses of steroids to get them through that period of injury and increased stress. So you have to tell them that so they can share that with their family and their other physicians. So corticosteroids, they're great, they're the wonder drug, except all the things I just spent 30 minutes talking about. Um, and we need to be able to screen for them, do baseline assessments before we put patients on them to lower those risks, um, monitor for adrenal suppression. That's kind of the sneaky thing that can be really, really dangerous in patients on long-term steroids um, and able to use them as safely as possible. And with that, we'll go mingle. And if you have questions about steroids or anything else that we've talked about, I'm happy to talk about those things over in the mingle room. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.